And we do so, at least sometimes, most of the time, oftentimes, we do so in order that other people would enter into our joys and our loves. And I had the wonderful opportunity to see this this morning. I was downstairs making my, my uh, coffee, as usual, and Owen came downstairs, and the first words out of his mouth as he put this little thing into my hands were, look at what I have. And it was this little Groot toy, you know, Groot, the Marvel character, this little Groot toy, which he clearly loved and which Maya had found yesterday. I thought it was so incredibly cute. Here he is, just overflowing with joy. And of course, you can see it in his eyes. And he wants me to share in it. So he speaks about it. So he puts that thing right in front of me. Friends, what we speak about, what we call others to experience, reflects actually what we love, doesn't it? especially so for the things that we gladly suffer for. In today's passage, Paul the Apostle, he puts in our hands, as it were, he brings to the forefront of our minds and our hearts the Christian's greatest joy. That is, Jesus Christ and His Gospel. And as Paul helps us enter into the joy of Christ, we are reminded to continue, right, laboring for Jesus Christ, even in the midst of difficulty and trials and suffering. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, and we are in chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul sometime in the last few years of his life, maybe 67, 66 A.D., right? So we're looking at maybe even a year before he died. And this is basically his last letter that we know of, certainly. It's the last letter that we have in the book of in, uh, the Bible here. Now, by this time, Paul had been a follower of Jesus for over three decades, He was preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, which he was very familiar with as a Jewish teacher. He was a teacher of the Old Testament. But before he knew Jesus, he actually persecuted those who called themselves Christians. But then in this wonderful, gracious experience, Jesus Christ appears to him and reveals actually that he is, in fact, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And he charges Paul to go, out, go around the Mediterranean world and preach the gospel and to plant churches. And oftentimes what he would do is he would see churches planted, then he would move on. But then he would return to those very churches, checking up on them, caring on them. And many of his letters, all of his letters here in the New Testament, are letters of care. He's following up here, doing what the pastor, what a fatherly figure does. He's following up with his so-called children in the faith. And this letter of 2 Timothy was written to a man named Timothy, a son in the faith, who was relatively young, maybe still in his 30s. And he had charged him to pastor the church in a city of Ephesus, which is a coastal city in modern-day Turkey. You can go there. I'd love to go there someday. And this, these types of letters are so fascinating, right? If you're exploring Christianity, these letters are like real letters. They're letters or like emails that you yourself would write to your loved ones, explaining what's going on, checking up on those that you so care about. And you get to see, and we get to witness, what is on Paul's heart here. 
This is the Apostle Paul used of God to lay the foundation of the church. That's what it means to be an apostle called of Jesus sent out to lay the foundation once and for all for the church. And here he is in a prison cell chained as a criminal. And in a relatively short time, he would be taken out of the city of Rome and executed for Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that, here he writes, passing the baton of the Christian ministry to Timothy, calling him to preach and to protect the gospel. He's passing it on to the next generation as represented by Timothy. Now, you guys might be wondering, okay, this letter is written to a pastor, to another pastor, right? How how relevant is this going to be for me when I have no intention of being a pastor? I would say it's absolutely still relevant. This letter is for you too. I mean, maybe, maybe, just maybe, you are here looking for a healthy church where you can grow and serve and commit to and be a member of. Well, friends, this letter is going to help you. This letter will help you understand, for example, the role of a pastor. It'll help you understand the pastor's priorities. It'll help you know what to pray for, for your pastors and others who teach God's word. It'll help you know what kind of leader you want to support, should support, follow, and even, as Scripture says, submit to, insofar as leaders submit to Christ and his word. So even though this letter was primarily directed to Timothy, a pastor, remember also that this letter was directed to the church as a whole, and to all churches, the church of Jesus Christ. And it is, after all, God's word useful for us today. So let's go ahead and look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, I'll go ahead and read 1 to 18, but of course our focus today is on 8 to 18. Let's go ahead and start at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Vagelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. As this passage both encourages and helps us examine our faithfulness in laboring for Jesus Christ, I got two questions for us from the passage, and these, these questions will form the outline of the sermon. The first question here is basically point number one. The first question here as we are encouraged and help to examine our labor for Jesus Christ. Question number one, are you willing to speak and suffer shame for Christ while not being ashamed of Christ? Are you willing to speak and suffer shame for Christ while not being ashamed for Christ? At the beginning of our passage, go ahead and look there in verse 8. Paul exhorts Timothy, just saying very plainly, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This verse simply follows immediately uh, what came before from verse chapter 7. You go ahead and look there. He says there, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of what? Of power, of love, of self-control. Given that reality, he says, therefore... And we can easily apply this to all of us, right? Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but because he's given all of us in the plural, therefore, because of these things, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You know, to feel the force of what Paul is saying here, we have to remember that there was actually so many reasons to be ashamed in regards to Christianity and Paul a proponent of it, an apostle of Christ. Christians were, in fact, as I mentioned last time, looked down upon in society. Christians were also, they had, they had this label on their backs, put on them by the emperor of Rome, Nero. He had accused them of starting this massive fire, which it turns out he himself started. And Nero went around and then uh, he went around and, and rounded up the Christians and had them tortured by animals and burned, becoming flames and tor- human torture. So imagine the stigma then of what it meant to become a Christian, to bear that name. To be a Christian was to bring on this social ostracization, ostracism. And, and along with that, the very real possibility of persecution, right? Bringing persecution to your very own doorstep, to your family's doorstep, to your children's doorstep. To make matters worse, thinking of uh, all that there is to be ashamed in the situation. The leaders of this Christianity, they were jailbirds. They were accused of being criminals. So there's even more stigma for these things. So those of you guys who are concerned or have been concerned about accumulating social points, moving up the social ladder, right? Uh, you you got to remember that having leaders who are in and out of jail would not have worked in your benefit. For those fighting for social prominence, you might be a little embarrassed. Not only about the name Christian, but for those who serve him, for his church, and especially for the Christ. But even for the one not caught up, right? Let's say there are a number of us here who, who don't know what it looks like to climb the social ladder. But even for the ones not caught up in moving up the social ladder, you would, I think, still be tempted to lose hope to be discouraged, maybe even to turn your backs given all this pressure, the persecution that you would, would be feeling here as you're seeing maybe your own friends die. 
you would be tempted, I think, as, even as Christians, to think that there is no hope, and so therefore you ought to just shut up. So Paul says, I think there, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now you've got to think about the way in which he's saying this. I don't think he's saying this as like it's a prohibition given by the drill sergeant, right? That's not how he's saying this here. Do not be ashamed. I think he's saying it as an aging mentor helping to cast vision again for the very thing for which they have suffered already for. The very things that Paul reminds Timothy to not be ashamed of, which we're going to see soon. They were the very things, once again, that they had already been shamed for. Paul go on to say that they had, Paul, had, Paul and Timothy had already shared in the same suffering. Right? This, is, this is suffering for the testimony of our Lord. That's what they suffered for. It's the very thing that Paul himself was suffering for and would, in fact, die for, was the testimony of our Lord. It's also described there, just look at the passage, I don't know if you noticed there. Verse 8 is described there as the gospel. Verse number 9, it's described here as the sound words or the healthy words, the life-giving words. And then verse 14, it's described here as the good deposit. All these things, all these phrases refers to the content or the truths about God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This is exactly what the disciples were charged to testify to. Right? So if you, if you remember, Jesus Christ, he is crucified on behalf of his people as he bore the sins of his people. He is then raised. He then appears to his disciples and reveals to them God's plan of salvation in full, saying in Luke chapter 24, it is written. Actually, why don't you go ahead and turn over there. Luke 24, turn to your left. If you're sitting next to somebody who seems like they don't know their way around the, the Bible and they're new to it, just feel free and volunteer to help them get there. Luke chapter 24, this is what he says there. In 46, right, he appears to his disciples, thus it is written, of course, written in the Old Testament, thus it is written that the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah to come to deliver, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says here, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There, this gift is, this empowerment is going to come from the Spirit. You see there, right, that they are charged to herald this testimony. They are charged to be witnesses of these things. Same with Paul, right? Jesus appears to him once again in Acts chapter 9. And there Christ calls him to bring his name to the Gentiles, to the leaders of the Jews and others. So he is charged there to be a preacher. Look at verse 11 there. Paul is appointed a preacher. That is a herald of the good news of Jesus. He is appointed to be an apostle. He's called to lay the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And then he is a teacher, faithfully teaching God's salvation plan fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was for that gospel that he lived and suffered for and was not ashamed. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed. This is Paul speaking. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, for us as American Christians, I think it's a little hard to imagine 
just how much shame would have been involved in following Christ in Paul's day. I say that because Christianity, this believing in Jesus, following Jesus, is still somewhat of an okay thing, right, to attach ourselves to in this day and age, right? I mean, certainly moving away from that, but nevertheless, at this very moment, it is still kind of an okay thing to attach ourselves to, right? We got Kanye. I'm not saying he's a Christian. I'm just saying, like, he claims to be a Christian, right? Right? Kanye is cool, according to some people. And so other people, I think, hey, it's cool to be a Christian. We got Bieber. I don't know if he's a real Christian, but he certainly says he's a Christian. Now, some of you guys love Chip and Joanna Gaines. You got Chip and Joanna Gaines, too. You got Chris Pratt. From what I understand, right, he's vocal about Jesus Christ. I don't know anything about their faith, but... You know, they say that they're Christians. So all I'm saying is that it's kind of cool still maybe in this day and age to attach ourselves to Christianity. This was not so in AD 64 when Nero went around, went around rounding up Christians and killing them. Being a Christian and standing for Christ brought public shame. But, you know, of course, it's not too hard to imagine what their experience is. You don't have to live in 64 AD to feel embarrassment or shame for the gospel. I'm guessing many of you guys know what this is like, even though standing for Jesus Christ is not going to get you round up and killed or burned alive. You're not going to get eaten by, by dogs. I mean, maybe for me, in terms of evangelizing my own friends that I grew up with, I had two friends who were disowned because they were Christians. One was from uh, Iran. The other one was a Buddhist or at least came from a Buddhist family. I mean, maybe we might experience that today. I mean, friends, just think about it in terms of identifying with the embarrassment and the shame. Haven't you ever had great, just fantastic opportunities to tell people about Jesus, but remained silent? Maybe you wanted to keep that relationship okay. Maybe because you wanted so badly to be seen as normal, right, in your boss's eyes, because he has the power to fire or the power to promote, And so you are silent because you fear man. Wanting so badly to fit in or wanting so badly to have the praise of man. And the ambassador of Jesus Christ charged to go out and share the gospel with others would rather just fit in with the world. So you choose to be quiet just for that one conversation And then, okay, maybe it turns, okay, it's just for that one week, which then turns into the one month, then turns into the one year, and then for that one decade. Friends, when was the last time you shared the gospel? Like, the actual gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. That God created us to be in a relationship with him, a loving relationship But man sinned. We didn't care about God. We rebelled against him. We wanted to throw off his own law because we wanted to write our own law and determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. And therefore, we rebelled against him and earned just condemnation. Even condemnation in hell, the Bible says, for treason. But according to God's good grace and his love for sinners, he reached out for us. He didn't immediately judge, which he had every authority to and right to, But instead, he delayed that and sent Christ to live the perfect life we should have and to die on the cross 
bearing the wrath and the judgment that we ourselves deserved, his people deserved, all so that we would know God as Father and the Lord as Savior and be forgiven of our sin. To turn away and to turn back to God so that we would be saved and experience eternal life in Jesus Christ who died on the cross. On the third day, he rose from the dead, showing that he is no longer hanging over those of his people, his people who turn away from their sins and plead forgiveness his forgiveness. So now we stand righteous. That is those who turn of their sins and turn to him. We stand righteous before him. Right? When's the last time you shared all those truths with somebody? When's the last time you asked your friend to, friend, repent, turn away from your sins and you will be saved? That's a little bit different than saying, come to church. It's a little bit different than saying, I believe in Jesus. When's the last time you shared the gospel as an ambassador for the king of the universe. In terms of the pressure, right, I get it. If one becomes a Christian, which is, you know, some of you guys, you guys might be new Christians. It's awesome. It's exciting. I get the complication, right? You're trying to learn how to live a life that pleases God in all aspects of your life, right? That alone is pretty challenging, super exciting, super challenging too. But then all of a sudden, you got to learn to do that in front of like your non-Christian friends and family who you've been doing life with and been sinning with for decades. It gets even more complicated, super exciting, also kind of complicated, also very challenging. You've got to do this in relation to the stuff that you talk about, the stuff you think about, the stuff you live for, the things you worship. You've got to think about like Things you drink, like alcohol, you gotta, right? You're trying to figure out how to navigate not getting drunk and worshiping Jesus and not doing this in front of your friends and trying to love them and share the gospel. It, it, it's gonna get complicated. And while standing for Christ and the gospel may not involve, once again, being fed to dogs, being burned alive, there are, in fact, very real consequences. I mean, if you think about it, who wants to lose their loved ones? Who wants to be disowned by their family? Who desires to be held back at their work on account of their faith? Who wants to be made fun of at the bar because you choose not to get drunk because you follow Jesus? Who wants to suffer embarrassment from the world on account of your Christianity, right? We get that there is a lot at stake in living for Christ, but nevertheless, God calls His people, His ambassadors, to not be ashamed. If you find yourself avoiding opportunities to speak about Christ, or if you find yourself simply just refusing to speak about Christ on account of the shame that might come your way, I pray that you would embrace this exhortation here. Remaining silent on account of the fear of man is a huge issue in Scripture, in people, meaning it's really crucial to work on, and it's an issue that is actually very common to man. In 2 Timothy 1, 15-18, you look there, right? He says there in 15, you are, you are aware of all in Asia who turned away from me, presumably on account of the persecution or on account of the shame that Paul was experiencing and that they were experiencing. This is a common issue. And then it's clear from Scripture that some people struggle with the fear of men, but yet they wrestle with those things and they repent of them. And then they continue. Just think about Peter, for example. He's fearing man not only at the crucifixion of Jesus when a girl calls him, weren't you with them? That is that Christ who's hung on the tree and died and his apostles and he fears man. But the Lord so graciously in recognizing that he struggles with the fear of man, 
nevertheless continues to have him in his service, which is what makes his reinstallation at the end of the book of John so encouraging, telling Peter, feed my sheep. That's encouraging. That means if you Christians struggle with the beard, man, you nevertheless are loved by the Savior. But there are others who struggle with the fear of man. For example, there are these disciples in the book of John who, you know, John says, believe in Jesus, but for fear of others, fear of the Jewish leaders, they refuse to confess. Timothy was well aware of the consequences of following Jesus as he received the baton of the Christian ministry, right? You realize that Paul is in jail, going to die. There's Paul awaiting execution. Paul is showing all how many Christians will end up and how many Christians have ended up finishing off their earthly race. And here Paul calls Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel. Are you willing to share in suffering for the gospel? Now, some of you guys are here saying, yes, I'm going to do it. But for many others, this prospect feels a bit daunting. You might be a little timid in personality. Or maybe you're struggling with your own sin and you wonder, like, how in the world am I going to stand up for Jesus? This brings us to point number two. Question number two. Question number two. What will help us stand for Christ? Or how in the world am I going to stand for Christ? Well, look there, verse 8. We haven't even got past the first verse. And it is already 1137. (laughs) Paul tells us first there at the end, how are you going to stand for Christ? First, Paul tells us, it is by the power of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Again, he's just continuing what he spoke about in verse 7. How is Timothy to fulfill his ministry as a pastor of the church at Ephesus? He knows, right? Paul knows exactly what what, uh, Timothy is up against. He knows that Timothy's a relatively young pastor, right? He knows all of the false teachers, the false teaching that's going on. He knows that people are are being strayed away, drawn away to godliness. And so he says there in verse 7, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, of self-control. And it's that power... That will help Christian and all that will help Timothy and all Christians stand for Jesus Christ. Christian, you realize that this power here that he's talking about is the fruit of the Spirit, that kind of power. Although it's not in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, it nevertheless is something that the Spirit of Jesus Christ works or brings about in the people of Christ. If you remember back to when Christ was, we already talked about this, right? When he was about to send out the disciples, he tells them, I want you to wait. I want you to stay in the city before you go out. Why is that? Because you will be empowered by the Spirit. Turn over to the book of Acts. Book of Acts, we already read the end of Luke, which was written by Luke the doctor, the physician. Here he's kind of, the book of Acts is all about the start of the church, right? Jesus uh, appears to his disciples and he tells them to wait, and then the book of Acts just chronicles how the disciples spread out, the churches started, they go out preaching the gospel. Um, Now look what he says there in verse 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive what? Power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see that there? That's Holy Spirit wrought power to do what? To witness to the ends of the earth. This is exactly what happens. The Spirit is poured out in the book of Acts. The Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost comes. The disciples preach then with great boldness. And then you look over to Acts chapter 4. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. And uh, right, they get, they get arrested. You look there in 423, right? They're released from prison. They go to their friends. They lift up their voices and they pray to God. Sovereign Lord, this is verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, according to the Old Testament, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers were gathered together against the Lord, that is Jesus, and his anointed. Yahweh and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand had predestined to take place. And look what they pray now. This is my point here. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, the disciples, the Christians, to continue to what? Speak your word with all boldness. While you, the sovereign God, the all-powerful God, stretch out your hand to heal and to do signs and wonders and are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And look what happens there. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. This is Holy Spirit wrought power to fulfill Christ's calling. The Spirit of Jesus Christ empowers His people to fulfill Christ's calling. Is there a lot of, at stake in suffering for the gospel? Yes, but thank God for His Spirit empowerment to fulfill all of our ministries. So, friend, are you shrinking from evangelizing and testifying about your greatest joy? Let me encourage you to pray for boldness. Pray for the Spirit to give you strength and power and conviction. Pray that the Lord would help you see people from His perspective. From an eternal perspective, that in that moment when you are struggling with that fear and embarrassment, that you would see them as either heading towards heaven or hell, based on whether they repent of their sins or not. Pray the Lord would grant you by the Spirit's power boldness, Spirit-wrought boldness, and boldness to love, love God and love others, because it is God and His Spirit and His power that would help us stand and stand even in the face of difficulty, let us then depend on the Spirit. That is the first thing that will help us stand, the power of God. Here's the second thing that will help us stand. There's two things, right? What will make us stand? The power of God. And second thing, remembering who it is that we suffer for. Remembering who it is that we suffer for. You realize that in this passage, right, we have the command, right, suffer for the gospel. Suffer for the gospel. But then you notice, too, how much space Timothy gives to reminding Timothy who it is that he suffers for. It's really interesting here. 
You got the command. Share in suffering for God by the power of God. And then Paul just kind of launches into this massive, detailed explanation of who their God is. I think this is super encouraging. Again, we got the command to suffer. And we all know, friends, right? We all know that we gladly suffer for certain things, right? You guys gladly suffer for certain things. You, you will gladly suffer for, let's say, that new job that you want, right? You're happy to put in the hours. You're happy to do everything that it takes to, to maintain, to get that job, to maintain that job, to advance, to climb the corporate ladder. Let's say those of you who want to go to school, you know what it's like to suffer for that degree. And you enter into that joyfully, don't you? You know what it's like to suffer, for example, let's say for your loved ones. You're going to work hard at your nine to five, right? So that you could support your family. That's good work, friends. You realize that we all know what it's like to suffer for the things we want, for the things we love. That's plain. That's obvious. That's just human life. We may not always consider it to be suffering. Oftentimes we consider it to be joy, but it is at times suffering nonetheless. That's what's going on here, right? He says, yeah, we we suffer, but now let's be reminded of what we love, right? Let's be reminded of what we love. Here's an illustration, right? Imagine your dream job is to intern at a museum, right? A museum, I I know, that's really nerdy, right? But let's just imagine that's you. You you desire to intern at a museum that has the most amazing artwork you can imagine. Whether that's the Louvre in Paris, or whether it's, I don't know, a Jordan Museum where you got all the Tinker's artwork displayed, right? You want to work there. You're dying to work there. Part of your job, right, that you so want requires you to do security. You got to guard the thing. Part of that job, too, requires restoring the paintings. Part of your job requires giving tours of the paintings, right, of the whole facility, helping people see what you see, appreciate what you appreciate, the most amazing art pieces that have come down throughout the centuries, all right here, right before you, and you get to work there. Now, as an intern, you will need to work hard. It's going to cost you. You're going to suffer. Everybody knows that. Well, so, friends, so does Paul. Paul knows that it's going to cost Timothy. Timothy knows that it will cost him. So Paul says there, suffer for the gospel of God. Continue in it. But then after that, he leaves that aside, right? And then here's an equivalent to what Paul does. He says, now let's go look at every single piece of artwork. All of the beauties that make them masterpieces. Let's spend an eternity here looking and staring and appreciating of all that is beautiful and wonderful. Friends, that is what is going on here. You just look at there. End of eight. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who? He he gave him the command. Now he's looking at the who. It's like the first piece of artwork, for example. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now he looks at the manner, right? The next piece of artwork. Not because of our own works, as if we could work for salvation. Grace would no longer be grace. Mercy would no longer be mercy. But because of his own purpose and grace. Then he goes on to the next piece of artwork, which, let's look at this grace, right? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. 
Now let's think about time. Before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now we look at Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Sure, in the worst of times, in our greatest temptations, on our worst of days, it might feel like a burden. Certainly we get tired. Sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes we might wonder if we have it in us. But deep down, on account of the Spirit's work on our hearts, we know this work is good. And, one, and the one for whom we work is glorious. That's who he's pointing him to. The work is good. Suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now we look at God. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you realize here that no one can walk away from, let's say, this verse or the gospels or the, all the Bible and think, yeah, Christians just believe in dry principles. That, that's it. You know, it's just like some philosophy they subscribe to and then hey, maybe they move on. You can't get away. From, you can't come away from Scripture concluding that here. Christians follow God, the Savior, Jesus, the person, the Savior. That's what he's called there in verse 12. God saved us in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, the Savior. We worship a person. And what better thing to do, right, when we are timid and fearful or a little tired, what better thing does Paul do than to bring us back to the gospel, right? God saved us when we deserve the exact opposite, right? When God had every right to, once again, as Lord, that is what Jesus is called to, called there in verse 2, chapter 1, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Lord, God had every right. As King, God had every light, right to damn us. As we were the ones who had rebelled against Him. Friends, you realize what this means for God to be Lord over us. It means that every sin, whether we sin against others or sin against ourselves even, all of those things are ultimately sin against God, His person, His good law. It's as if he has our rap sheet of offenses. And in his righteousness, he could, in his righteousness, he could lay all of that weight upon us, the weight of judgment and wrath for all of our sin and every single one of our sins. But what does he do as, as Lord? Interestingly, here, out of love, out of love, this is a Lord, a Lord who loves. Out of love, he takes the punishment that his people rightly deserve and he lays it upon his own substitute that he himself provided. That is Jesus Christ, his eternal son, the chosen one, the Christ. That's what it means, right? Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the Christ, the chosen one, the one whom God had promised to send and the one whom he actually sends. Jesus Christ, the Lord, who fulfills all of His promises to save. If you are a Christian, God has prepared, right, this Christ for you out of His grace before time eternal. Did you see that there, right? This is this masterpiece that He helps us look at here. Well, when is it that God loved us? You look there at verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of His own purpose of grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What is it that he loved you? He, he loved you before time eternal. What a loving Lord we have. And not only that, though, but 
But then he sends Jesus Christ at a particular time so that we would all experience this love through his death on the cross. His grace was manifested, it says. It was revealed. It appeared. That is love, friends. Love from before time eternal. Love in the arrival of Jesus Christ and his work so that you, Christian, would be saved. And so that his people would know him as a loving father. In light of your fear of man, friends, let me encourage you to forget striving so hard to be loved by sinful man or to win the approval of sinful man. When you, friend, are loved by your loving Lord, you are loved by the heavenly Father. Did you notice that, notice that there, right? To God, it says, grace, peace, uh, grace, mercy, and peace, in verse number two, from God the Father who loves And he loves you, not friends, not in a fleeting moment, but before time eternal, as he was preparing you for his grace. He loves you in the present, as Jesus came in time. And he loves you all the way until the last day and forevermore. In in light of facing persecution at the hands of mere men, maybe at, at the possibility of losing your very lives. Friends, here, we are reminded, friends, God has pardoned you of your guilt and sin against him. He has relieved you of your eternal damnation so that you would now know eternal salvation and freedom underneath his rule and reign. Christ has saved us and loved us all according to his grace, not according to anything you have done. Did you notice that? What is it? That gives us his grace. Is it, is it our works there? Verse number nine. It is not because of our works, but it's only because he purposed it to be this way. It is only on account of his grace. And so even when we die, we die being enveloped and confident of God's grace. Even though we might be persecuted and lose our lives, we close our eyes there on that last moment, knowing, as the word says here, in verse 11, that Christ has abolished death. In his resurrection, death was defeated. So, in Christ, sure, we die, but we will live again on account of the fact that Christ brought, did you notice there, this other masterpiece of life, Christ brought life and immortality to light. So the Christian, by God's grace, can fulfill our ministries, right? Again, we can close our eyes, even in the darkest of persecution, knowing full well that Christ has brought life to light. This is who Paul and Timothy gladly suffer for. That is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Is there a call to suffer? Of course. But the God we suffer for is glorious. And he has won salvation for his people in Christ Jesus. This is the Jesus that you, Christian, are called to testify to. The Lord, the Savior, the Chosen One of God, Christ, who dies on the cross to save sinners. If you're visiting with us, you too can be saved. You can know this loving Lord, this Heavenly Father, the power of Christ who abolishes death and brings life eternal to all those who repent of their sins and believe. You can know that. If you repent of your sins and believe, you will be forgiven This is exactly what Christ holds out. He calls all to turn away from sin and to him, and you will know rest for your souls and purpose 
a purpose worth living for until your very own last breath. In terms of application, I wonder if your words, speaking to the Christian here, I wonder if your words testify to the fact that Jesus is Lord of the universe. The king of the entire kingdom. Evangelism, right? Do your words testify to the fact that Jesus is the Lord? And even in the ways in which you speak, the manner in which you speak these words, do, does the manner reflect that you speak on the authority of the eternal king of the universe? Or do you speak with the boldness of a little village mouse? meaning that your God is nothing but a village mouse. Do you, speak on, do you speak of Jesus as the Savior who has delivered you from death and saved you from eternal damnation? You figure that if you lived in that reality, we would be speaking with a corresponding gratitude, a corresponding joy, love for God, a healthy, robust indebtedness, and an eagerness to tell others about your Savior. Do you speak with that eagerness when you're talking to your friends about Jesus Christ? Do you speak with joy? How about the way you speak of Him as God's chosen one, who in Him alone is salvation? I mean, have you ever told someone else that it is only through Him that there is salvation. Him alone. It's easy to talk about Jesus. It's a little harder to talk biblically that the only way to the Father is through Christ. God forbid our friends and family would say about us on account of our fear of man. Based on what he said, I didn't know Jesus was so important. In talking to her, it just seemed like she was recommending Christ to me. I didn't know salvation was only through him. Church, may it never be that you find it necessary to make Christ small in your friend's estimation so that you would be big in theirs. It may mean that your estimation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ really is that small. And your estimation of yourself or others really is that big. Why fear man who can destroy the body when Christ has already saved your eternal soul from destruction and won for you freedom from death and life eternal and a new body in heaven? Is there a call to suffer? Yes, there is. It's obvious. We all know what it's like to suffer for things we love. But then, friends, in the moment there, when it is difficult, go on and remind yourself who it is that you suffer for. You suffer for God and His salvation plan in Christ alone, all by His grace and love, so that we would know eternal life. That's what Paul says there. If you look there in 13, 14, right? How is it that he is to not be ashamed and continue suffering? He says there in 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern. You guys realize that he just laid out a pattern? Share in suffering for the gospel. Who is this God? Let me tell you the pattern of what we teach and say about who this God is. He says, follow that pattern. Keep it. 
That is the gold standard. Follow the pattern of the sound words, the healthy words, the life-giving words. That's what it means in the faith as we all have faith in Jesus. And also as we persist in the love that is in Christ Jesus. In keeping it and in reviewing it and in preaching it, we go on to there in 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to us. You see how much there Paul wants to guard that deposit that was entrusted him. And of course, when we're thinking deposit or the gospel, always think of the person that the gospel speaks about and testifies to. It's the truth about Jesus. He received it. He doesn't want anybody to alter it. Don't mess around. Don't say that Christ is not God or don't say that Christ has never been human. He is the God man who has died on the cross for sins. Don't mess with those things. Just keep it, preserve it. Guard the good deposit entrusted to us. Friends, you realize that here we hope to be reviewing this and keeping the pattern of the healthy words, the sound words in this service and holding it out to us every single week here from every passage that we preach on. I want to teach and we want to review just how glorious our God is and what that has to do with our lives so that if we are ever called to suffer for the sake of Christ's name, we would gladly take up that charge while beholding that wonderful Savior. That's why, friends, in every single sermon that is preached here, we hope that no one would ever leave here not knowing what to do to be saved. We want everybody here to know the gospel, right? Which is why we talked about the gospel two times, actually, in this sermon thus far. God created us. We rebelled against him. God sent his son, Jesus, to forgive us of sin. He died on the cross bearing the wrath that we deserve so that all who would ever repent of their sins and believe in him would be saved. That's the gospel. Talked about that two times already. Now three times already. We want people to know that so that when you leave the door, if you're not a Christian, you know what to do. That is nothing of your own, but to simply acknowledge your sin, that you have rebelled against God, and to cast yourself at Christ and His work who wins salvation. Repent of your sin and believe. We talk about that here in the sermon. We sing songs about that. We read scriptures about that. We pray prayers about that. We do this in order to help preserve or to keep the pattern of sound words. He's going to talk about what this means. Paul's going to talk about what this means again. We'll just leave it right there at that corporate church application, right? This is why we do what we do. So if you come into church thinking like, hey, why why does the sermon always sound the same even though he's preaching from 1 Samuel to when Jason's preaching on the book of Luke to when Oscar's preaching on the book of Jude to when I'm preaching here in 2 Timothy, why does it to some degree all sound the same? Because, friends, it all arrives or culminates in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Praise God you're saying that. That means we're actually doing something right. We are keeping the pattern of the sound words that we have heard from Paul, from Timothy, from God's word right here as we throw ourselves and cast ourselves in the faith of Jesus Christ and in the love that is in him and in his work on the cross. Is standing for Christ difficult sometimes? Yes. Will it require effort and suffering if God should call us to that? Yes. But the holy calling we have been given, the holy calling, as it says there, God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. This holy calling of preserving the gospel and holding it out to everyone we come across, to labor for Jesus as his ambassador and the church being his, uh, an earthly, heavenly assembly, that work is good. And our God 
is glorious. So let us then continue speaking about our greatest joy, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and calling others to enter into the joy of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are that glorious. And in calling us to yourself, you call us to behold the beauties of the King, as it says in your word, the glories of God, the magnificence of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, your chosen one, the powerful work of Christ who died on the cross, who abolished death once and for all so that we might live again. The work of Jesus Christ who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and the power that the gospel has to change our very lives. Lord, we thank you that we have so many opportunities to be reminded of these truths Help us see them in all of their glories. God, we know, we confess that sometimes it is difficult. Sometimes we do fear man. Sometimes we do get sidetracked. But help us have a fear of you. We pray, Lord, that we would be living for you in all ways and at all times. Compel us by your grace, according to your word, by the power of the Spirit, to see you for who you are and to see ourselves and others for who we are. And so therefore we would be compelled to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others as that alone, that is Jesus Christ alone, is the one in whom there is salvation. Lord, we pray even in the ways in which we live our lives, Lord, that we would so live our lives in a way where, the, where we testify to the only thing worth believing in and trusting in and casting ourselves upon is Christ and the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would do these things, that you would empower us by your spirit, that your spirit would so work in us so that we might fulfill the calling you have given us. In your name we pray, amen.